0: Oh, it looks a little different from down here. Can you still see me okay? That's great. Um, as Frank said, we have the survey that uh, that we want you to do, and I thought this morning what I'd like to do is to, to just illustrate a little bit about what it is that we're trying to do, and uh, sometimes when I'm out with folks, uh, actually, when I'm out one-on-one with someone, uh, a lot of times I'll get the uh, the comment, um, thank you so much for your time. I know you're really busy. I'm sorry I'm taking so much of your time. And I've got to stop him right there. And I say, you know what? Everything that I do as a pastor is only so that I have the time to be able to sit here one-on-one with you. You know, it, that is the most important thing. My theory of communication is, is that the best, clearest, and deepest communication is one-on-one. And every time you add a person, you're going down further and further in terms of your ability to communicate. And so really when you think about it, the least communicative thing that I do all week is this right here. Just me speaking one way to you all, and you all have no ability really to feedback. Yeah, you do at times, but uh, not formally anyway. And so what we do on Wednesdays, uh, Wednesday nights is a smaller group, and we're able to just kind of flow with the discussion and move. And at times in here, though, we've also had what we call conversations, which also gives a chance for feedback and for questions and for discussions and comments and so on and so forth. And so the choices that you have on your survey is that the one that we think may be the most profitable is for us to take what we do on Sunday as a monologue when I'm just up here just talking directly at you I know that it goes by really quickly, although I've also been told it goes too long, uh, and that the last ten minutes uh, are kind of diminishing returns, so I'm going to try to keep those things shorter, but what we thought was, would it be good for you if we had a second bite at the apple, if we had a second night where we recapped what we did on Sunday in short form, maybe added a few other little bells and whistles, but then spent the rest of the time in discussion. And so that way we have the statement of what it is, the concept is, or what we're talking about. And then we have a chance to actually discuss it, kick it around, be able to ask questions and talk about it. We found that, that in the discussion is where everything really comes alive. You know, uh, we, on, on our group sessions where we're discussing um, the questions and the answers and as everybody speaks, it's amazing how things that maybe were a little bit opaque or not really clear come clear in the in that give and take. And so that 's what we were thinking that may be a good thing for Tuesday nights is to have the band play and then have this discussion. so to try to illustrate what it is we 're going to do i thought let 's do that this morning. shall we you know so let 's let 's all pretend that it 's tuesday night all right it 's Tuesday night. You just lost the day and a half of your lives all right it 's Tuesday night, and last Sunday, what we talked about was salvation. And we talked about it in the sense that I had gotten taken to task because I may get people to want to attain salvation, but I don't exactly tell them how to do it. And so what we did was we went through three key scriptures from Paul. And why do people say that they think that I don't tell people how to attain salvation? It's because Paul tells us in Romans 10 that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So there's a formula there. There's two things that need to happen, according to Paul. If we take that line as a one-liner and just literally at face value, right? But then what Paul says in Ephesians 2, and these scriptures are in your handouts if you want to take a look, is that we're only saved by grace through faith. There's nothing that we can do to affect it so that nobody can boast. There are no works at all. So what happened to the two works in Romans 10 when they were just invalidated in Ephesians 2, where there are no works at all? It's all grace. It's all God's love. It's our faith that brings us into that. But then he says in Philippians that we're going to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. So I'm really confused. I don't know about you. Thank you, Paul. What are we going to do with this? How are we going to harmonize these three, these three verses? And so that's what we did two weeks ago. What we did was we take a look at the context. And here's the thing. When you take one line out of Scripture, it can say basically whatever you think it says. Or it can say exactly what the literal understanding of those words are. But if you bring it back into context, and sometimes it's just the surrounding paragraph, as it is with these two. But sometimes you need to take the entire chapter, or maybe even the chapter before and the chapter after, to get the larger view. What is the theme? What is going on when Paul is talking? Now, I've made a big point over and over of saying that you cannot understand Jesus. You cannot understand Jesus' message unless and until you understand Jesus kingdom as Jesus is is understanding it, as Jesus is trying to convey it. As you could arguably say that Jesus spent his whole ministry trying to define, because he knew that the people of his time had a specific understanding of kingdom, and he was using it in a different way. It wasn't the political and military sovereign state that the people were looking for when they talked about kingdom, and the Mashiach, the Messiah, bringing that on. He was talking about a quality of life that's available right here, right now, when we become what the Jews called anavim. This was the attitude of poverty, even if you're rich. Jesus calls it poverty of spirit in the first beatitude. This condition of the heart that is humble, close to the ground, right? Right? realizing the dependent nature of the relationship. The people who were physically poor and marginalized in their society were anavim by circumstance. But some of them rose to become anavim interiorly. They still had gratitude. They still had a sense of place, even though they knew that their place was as the dependent, as the receiver, that through their own actions they could do nothing. They couldn't change their social status. They couldn't change their financial status. They were completely reliant on God to bring those things to them. That condition of the heart to maintain your gratitude, to maintain your groundedness, to maintain your hopefulness that God will provide, even in circumstances, that is what Jesus calls kingdom. That quality. Of heart, that quality of attitude and relationship, if you, you don 't understand kingdom, then you will not understand jesus message. you will misinterpret and misunderstand everything that Jesus is saying if you have a different understanding of kingdom. when it comes to Paul, I would say that you cannot understand Paul until you understand the transition that he was trying to bring his early followers through from the law of the Jews, the law of Israel into a different type of relationship. Everything that he was doing. And this was the big fight. If you read all of Paul's letters, you see that fight in those letters. You see him constantly trying to transition. Do you need to be circumcised? No, you don't need to be circumcised. With him and with Peter, do you need to eat the, the, the pure foods that are kosher with, un, with, under the Jewish law? No, you don't need to do that in order to follow Jesus. Do you need to follow all the temple impurity codes and the 613 laws under Torah. No, you don't need to do that. Even if you don't know anything about them, you can still be a law unto yourself if your heart is in the right place. Paul is trying to make this transition from Jewish law and and all things Jewish into a different type of following of Jesus in which Jesus ended the temple sacrificial system. Everything that he did in his ministry, in his life, and in his death ended the authority of that system. If you get that, then what Paul is trying to get across starts to make perfect sense. You see, what he's talking about in salvation in in uh, uh, in these three passages, the centerpiece is Ephesians two. That's really his statement. Take a look at it. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves; it is the gift of God. Nothing you can do; it's just a gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. See how he's moving away from law? See how he's moving away from works. A Jew hears that and understands it in a particular way. He's trying to get them to see. It's not about following slavishly the law anymore. It's not about running back to temple, running back to the Pharisees. It's about something else entirely. It's God's love approached through faith, which Jews understood as the action of continuing to live as if something were true. Well, then when he goes to Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. What's going on there? When you put that back into context, what starts to happen is we realize, just as Jesus said when he was talking about the purity codes themselves, the dietary codes, it's not what goes into a man's mouth, he said, that defiles him or her. It's what comes out. So what he's saying in the negative, Paul is saying in the positive. It's not it that confessing and believing are prerequisite acts or works that you need to do in order to be saved, it's the result of your salvation. It's the result of that inward transformation. What is going to come out of you is what sanctifies, not what goes in from the outside. And so when you read that in context, and when you read the section from Deuteronomy that he's quoting in that paragraph surrounding this particular verse... You see that in spades. The word is within us, Moses is saying. Paul is quoting him. It's within you. And when you have gotten to the place where that salvation has taken root in you, it can't help but come out. That boldness of submission will come out as you confess that Jesus is your Lord, not just with your mouth, but with your entire life. And that idea that that believing which is never separated from trust in the ancient language, the trust in the impossible works of God, such as raising Jesus from the dead, when you truly trust that, you have entered into the anavim relationship. And when he says to work out your salvation in fear and trembling in Philippians, that fear and trembling sounds a little weird to us. It sounds like there's actual fear, terror involved in this, and the trembling makes it even worse. But it's a Hebrew idiom. And it means the same thing as anavim. It means the same thing as poverty of spirit. It means this relationship that you understand is you as dependent. And when you have entered into that type of relationship, when your attitude of heart is such, then you realize that you are one with God. You realize that unity is the basis of everything. And that is the salvation. Because what a Jew understands of salvation is not what we understand of salvation. To a Jew, salvation doesn't have anything to do with the afterlife. We've talked about this in here before as well. To a Jew, salvation is spiritual liberation right here and right now. It's the same thing as moving into this kingdom quality of life, this kingdom attitude of life that Jesus is talking about. Everything comes together. It looks like there's all these separate things. Kingdom and Salvation and redemption and all this. No, it's, it's the one thing that he keeps coming back to over and over again. Is there a little bit more light that we can shed on this? And I think there is. When you look at John 3, John 3 is the wonderful discussion between Jesus and Nicodemus. There are a couple of instances where someone comes to Jesus and asks, what must I do to attain eternal life? Obviously, Nicodemus has asked him the same question, even though it's not stated In this chapter. But Jesus is answering the question, even though we don't actually get the question from Nicodemus. And everything Jesus is talking about is if you want eternal life, this is what needs to happen. You're going to need to be born again. You're going to need to be able to see life from this different, completely different aspect. Are you ready for that? You're a teacher of Israel. Can you break through everything you think you know and get to the point where this is real? In this very real way, eternal life and salvation are exactly the same concept to a Hebrew mind. The idea of right nowness, spiritual liberation, this fearless vulnerability and ability to connect. So what happens at John 3.16? Possibly the most famous verse in the Bible from an evangelical point of view anyway. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Okay, sounds like more prerequisites, doesn't it? More things we got to do. we got to believe in him. Otherwise, we're going to perish and not have eternal life. But if we take a look at a couple of key words in there, we're going to see how, from the Aramaic point of view, things start to shift. The word for world and the word for eternal in Aramaic, is the same word. That seem a little weird to you? It's the same word, Alma. Alma means world, and Alma means eternal at the same time. How in the world, in the Hebrew mind, do those two things connect? Well, the actual meaning of Alma is an era, an age, or a generation. But what the roots point to are never-ending cycles of newness and diversity. In other words, in every age, in every generation, there is newness, there is new children, there is new diversity in the world. So as the Hebrew looks out over the world and we see these never-ending cycles, going through the seasons, going through weather patterns, watching the animals going through birth and rebirth and the crops you know, coming to fruition and harvest and then going back into the ground and then coming through harvest— The same idea for these never-ending cycles was what they applied to the world because that's what they saw. And so if you understand world and eternal that way, what is eternal life? Now once again, the Jews aren't thinking about the afterlife. That's not their idea. That's God's domain. Can't know anything about it, and it doesn't matter because God will take care of it. If we do what we're supposed to do right here and right now, with his infinite justice and his infinite wisdom and his infinite goodness, everything is going to be fine there. Don't got to pay a lot of attention to it. Focus here, now. So eternal life that we think of is life that extends out forever into eternity, right? Across the threshold of death and into eternity. What is a Jew thinking about when a Jew thinks about eternal life? Jew is thinking about life right here, right now, that is eternally alive. Eternally new, eternally fresh, never boring, always exciting, fulfilling. Every new corner, a new vista. Jesus said, I came to bring you life. came to bring them life and life abundantly. Same idea. This abundant life is the life that is eternally alive, always moving, always changing. So right away we have a different idea. What must I do to obtain life that is always experienced as alive, as new, as fresh? Lord, what do I need to do for that? Changes the nature of the question, doesn't it? And then we have this idea of Jesus. God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son. Only begotten. The word in Aramaic is "ihidaya," Ihidayah. And it means single or it means solitary. And so it can be legitimately translated as only begotten, the only child. But the roots again point to a complete connection and unity from inside to outside. Everything unified. The Jews had the idea of the internal community and the external community. And the idea was for everything to be unified. Jesus is the son of, of unity, the unified, completely unified. We would say probably integrity, everything connected, everything one. Jesus is the integral, unified son of God. God means unity, Allah in Aramaic as well. He is the unified son of unity. God gave his own unity in the form of Jesus, that if we trust, believe, trust, live with, connect with become one with then we won't have destruction we won't be off track distracted we won't perish but we will have life that is eternally alive that's really what John 3:16 is telling us it dovetails perfectly with what Paul is telling us in Ephesians it's not by works that we do it's certainly not a, by obeying law and checking all the boxes and trying to make ourselves righteous enough? It's about the opposite. us about pushing away and falling down into this place, just like Jesus did in, in terms of, of, of the, the letting go of even his divinity, letting go of everything he was so that he could be born impoverished in a stable. Same idea. These themes are over and over and over again in the Scriptures for us. But let's finish this. Starting at verse 17, John 3. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He's not there to judge. He's there to save. Bring people into this quality of life. He who believes, trusts in him, is not judged. He who does not believe, does not trust, has been judged already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now that sounds pretty bad. Sounds like we're right back to prerequisites. Sounds like we're right back to things we got to do or else, right? Context. Context. What is the next line in verse 19? This is the judgment. He's going to tell us what this judgment is. We think we know what judgment is based on our own colloquial use. But he says, no, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. The light is already here. What does John one one say? Actually, John one." Ah, uh, where did I bring that? Uh, it's it's right after the, the very beginning of the of, of John, John one five. He's saying that Jesus is the light among men, and the light is the life of men. And then he says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Sometimes you see it as the darkness did not overtake it. But what does that word that is translated as comprehend mean? It means to eagerly take eagerly take, to seize, to possess, to perceive, or to comprehend. The light is already here, but we aren't perceiving it. We aren't comprehending it. We aren't seizing it and taking it. In other words, we aren't choosing it because we're still living in fear, doing all the evil, bisha, right, unripe, immature things that we do out of fear that keep us from being able to see what's right in front of us. This is the idea. This is how you bring together these themes in John and Jesus and Paul to give us a single picture. And the idea is, is that God has already chosen. He chose to give us the light, to give us the light. He's chosen to give us everything that we will ever need. And now he's waiting for us to choose back. The salvation is about our choice, not about God's choice or judgment on us. What do we choose? There is no work, there is no thing that we can do to make God love us, or love us more, or save us. It's all a free gift, and it's already here. Are we going to comprehend it? Are we going to perceive it? This is the attitude. Now, how much time did I take there? Was that about 15 minutes or so? I don't know. 20 minutes? Okay, so I went a little bit long, but sue me, you know. 20 minutes isn't bad for me, actually. If we were on a Tuesday night, all right, if this is a Tuesday night, we'd have a bigger bite at the apple. We'd have 45 minutes maybe to an hour where if I restated in 15 or 20 minutes and set the table like we just did, now we can talk about it, you know. When you hear something like that, what does it do in you? Does it, does it bring up all the resistance and all the hackles from, uh, from when you were young? I mean, good grief. It took me a decade plus to get over that feeling as I was trying to move out into new ways of understanding this scripture, new ways of understanding my relationship with Jesus and my relationship with Father. And people would tell me I'm going to hell, right? And so then I'd run back to my books and make sure okay, did I miss a dot here or something? Did I miss? And I don't do that anymore. If someone tells me I'm going to hell or implies it by breaking fellowship with me, it still hurts, of course. It hurts deeply because it's a broken relationship. It may be someone that I counted as a friend or had hoped to, but it doesn't send me scurrying back to my books anymore. It doesn't break the chain, the link, the connection that I have with God. Because I know that my God, even if I'm wrong, is not going to damn me for a wrong thought in my head. That's not who he is. And I know that he is forgiveness and he is relationship. And so it's a different kind of hurt that I get now. But is that what's happening in some of you when you hear something that is so stridently different than we've been taught all our lives in Western Christianity? Does anyone have a question about what this means? A comment? Uh, an an example in your life where maybe you had the aha moment. Is there something that we can talk about here? And that's not a rhetorical question. That's a real question because we have a little time left. Anything that you want to talk about here? I mean, this, uh, maybe because you all have uh, been like frogs, you know, raised in the the temperature of the water here at the effect for a few, maybe this isn't so shocking to you, but it's shocking. Marion. Absolutely, so for the sake of the recording here, she asks, why do so many churches use fear as a main motivator? I, I think in many ways, the question sort of answers itself: What is the quickest, fastest, and surest motivator to get someone to do what you want them to do or think they need to do? Fear isn't it? It's usually the stick. It can be the carrot, too, but the church uses the carrot as well, doesn't it? The carrot and the stick. You know, here's your reward. Here's what you're going to get in the next life if you do good here. But mostly, here's what you're going to get if you don't do good here. And so, because the church has become so legalistically minded, and isn't it ironic that Jesus starts his ministry fighting against the legalists of his day. If you read the prophets, read Micah, read Jeremiah, read Isaiah, they read just like Jesus. They're coming from this place of heart. And Micah even says, he says, look, you think the Lord wants you to burn rivers of oil? Do you think he wants you to kill a thousand rams and a thousand oxen? He doesn't want any of that stuff. He doesn't care about that. All he wants you to do is to love justice, act kindly, and walk humbly with your God. And I paraphrase that. Love justice, do kindness, and walk humbly with your God. That's closer. That's it. That's what he's talking about. Guess what that is? To love justice, do kindness, and walk humbly with your God. That's anavim. That's that attitude of heart right back there again. But the Pharisees in their diligence, which started out legitimately to try to preserve Judaism against the influence of Persia, the influence of Zoroastrianism, as the the Jews came back out of exile after two generations there. They came back speaking Aramaic. They spoke Hebrew before that. He came back with all these other ideas that were a mix of Judaism and Zoroastrianism, the religion of the Persian Empire. And so the Pharisees are trying to purify and to hold on. They were the conservatives of their day. And that was a legitimate thing. But they did their job so well. (laughs) They codified the law so well that it became all about the law. So 300 years later, by the time Jesus is on the scene, it's all about the law. It's all about doing this, 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 this. There's no heart left in it. There's no relationship left in it. And so Jesus comes on the scene and he needs to return the hearts of the people back to their father. And that's exactly what he's trying to do. And Paul takes up the mantle and he's doing exactly the same thing into the Gentile world. No, you don't even need to keep the laws of Judaism, even though our Savior was a Jew. It's entering into this relationship. And by a hundred years later, a hundred and a half years later... The Gentile world of Christianity is so completely divorced from any of the Hebrew roots that we're right back into legalism again, and we've been there ever since. And so, because the church is really based on law and not based on love, then fear becomes the operational mode. What is the law? What is the teeth and the traction of the law? Put it that way it's the fear of punishment. John talks about this in 1 John directly. He says, hey, if you're walking around on, in fear, then you're not perfected in love because fear is the fear of punishment, and there ain't any in God's economy. So yes, the church uses the fear because it's based in a legal understanding of our relationship, and it's the fast way to motivate people. Richard Rohr has a great way to put it. He says the church has all been, been all about sin management for the last 1,500 years or so, certainly the last 500. But it's just about managing sin. And that can be also from the best of intentions. If you really believe that God is the judge who's going to send you to hell if you have infracted the law, then the best thing you can do is keep the law and put the fear of God in terms of terror of God and the terror of punishment, instill that from the earliest possible age so that people have the best chance of towing the line, even though Paul expressly says there's nothing we can do, it's just a gift. So it all comes back to front. But that's the reason. But it starts with the legal understanding and then it progresses from there. If we can do as Jesus is telling us, make that quantum leap from fear into love, from this idea that we have a contract with God to the idea that we are sons and daughters of God that are already loved as much as we can possibly be, then... What comes out of that type of assumption, that type of foundation, looks very different. It's no longer motivation by fear. It's not even motivation by carrot anymore. It's that this moment is its own reward. This moment I'm living right now is as full as it can possibly be. Very different sort of idea. Yeah? So when it says in Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, what kind of fear are we supposed to... Use to work it out with. What does it mean? Okay, he wants to know when when uh, Paul is saying, "Work out your salvation in fear and trembling." What kind of fear are we talking about here? What kind of fear do we use to work it? Fear of what? Okay, so fear of the Lord is what we talk about all the time, uh, and, and is, is in the scriptures. The beginning of wisdom is fear of the Lord, right? And so we have this idea of fear of the Lord. It has nothing to do with being afraid of the Lord. It has nothing to do with terror of the Lord. What it has to do is this relationship again. If you really are a good and responsible and aware child, a grateful child, then you respect your parents, right? You understand their authority. You realize that everything that you have, the roof over your head, the, the food on the table, the, your, your ability to go to school and have clothes on your back, everything flows from your parents. Nothing you have done for yourself. That a relationship is the same one that we can have to our Father in heaven if we fear him. So the fear is that sense of reverence, that sense of awe, that sense of, of dependence, that sense of provision that we get from him to realize that everything we have flows from above. Every good gift comes from above, as the epistles tell us. And that idea of fear of the Lord is that kind of relationship. Fear and trembling refers to the same thing. It's another idiomatic expression. You know, We're not going to understand it by just looking at the definitions of the words. We have to take it back into the context of how the people themselves at the time were using it. And so what it means is the same thing. Fear and trembling means with that kind of awareness of God's sovereignty... God's authority, but also God's love and God's provision. And so when we enter into that type of attitude of life, we are entering into the state of salvation as understood as spiritual liberation, the fearless vulnerability that allows us to be completely transparent and open with each other, no longer defended. As long as we're defended, as long as we're trying to hide something, Or to project something, we are not able to really be connected with each other. And if you think about those peak moments in your life where you felt completely connected, you realize that you felt that way because your defenses had dropped. When as a new mother, that baby is laid on your chest and you're looking at that little face and that's the entire universe, that's an undefended moment, right? It's a beautiful moment, but it's a scary moment, too, because you realize how much you can be hurt. I often hear this from fathers more than mothers, new fathers more than new mothers, that when they look at their baby, they're terrified (laughs) because they realize the awesome responsibility and how much they can be hurt in this relationship, and it's a scary thing. But enter into a love relationship, into any relationship, that fear and trembling is going to be there. Why do the, we do the dance we do before we actually allow ourselves to fall in love with someone? Because that relationship, as beautiful and euphoric as it is, also means we're completely undefended. Okay? Yeah. Did you have something? No? no? Oh, okay. I thought I saw your hand. Dougie! Okay, so you want you want to talk about the uh, Lazarus and, and Abraham's bosom, and, and how that figures into all of this? Yeah, I heard a fireproof stone preacher the other day who was really, to point, using uh-huh. fear, no love, fear, 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 and I don't think it's a great motivator because can be the most central person just listen to fear. Okay. Do you know what he's talking about when he talks about uh, Lazarus and Abraham? It's a parable that Jesus tells that uh, there was a rich man who, who lived really well, and then Lazarus was a poor beggar that would eat the, the crumbs that would fall off the table, and the dogs would lick his sores, and 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 so it's just a picture of the inequity between the rich and the poor in life. They both die, right? And then there's a scene in in uh, in this intermediate you know, afterlife setting where Lazarus is now being comforted in in Abraham's bosom. And that was a specific, um, another idiomatic expression that meant a place of comfort. It was kind of a transitional place. The Jews had the idea of multiple levels of heaven. And so this was a place before you would descend into the next level. It's the third level, the one that Paul was translated to, the third heaven. Would be the Gane Dane, that complete unity and connection with God, and so he's in this place called Abraham's bosom, which is kind of a transitional place. But the rich man is across a chasm that cannot be tra- traversed, and he's in torment, and he's and he's being, you know burned and he's wailing and, and all this. And he asks if Lazarus can just bring a drop of water to him because he's, he's burning so much. And, and, and Abraham says, no, can't be done. We can't cross this chasm. And he says, well, then can Lazarus at least tell my, my living relatives about what this really is so that they don't end up in my fate? And he says, no, nope, can't do that either. <laughs> they have the prophet's. If they're not going to listen to them, they're not going to listen to anybody, basically. So what's going on here? What's happening here? First of all, we need to, again, put this into context. The Jews do not have a concept of hell the way we do. The Jews don't have a concept of hell as an everlasting place of torment for sins. Understood as whoever you are at this, taking a snapshot at the moment of your death qualifies you to go either to heaven or hell the way we basically um, think of that in Western Christianity. So God makes a judgment based on that weighing of the balances, and then you are in this everlasting place of torment. The Jews don't have a concept like that. The word, there's five words in the Old and New Testament that are used that have been translated as hell, and none of them mean that. But the one that Jesus uses the most and the one that he's referring to here in this parable was called Gehenna. And Gehenna was a, an image taken from the Valley of Hinnom, which was an actual valley at the south of the Temple Mount, which served as a garbage dump for the city of Jerusalem. And so all of the organic waste was thrown into this valley, and it was burned there. So the fires were constantly burning. And they would just throw, throw more garbage on top of the already smoldering heaps and burn those as well to purify them so that there wouldn't be disease in the city or around the city. And so the fires were always burning, was always acrid smoke. It was, it smelled horrible. To a Jew, it was the most unclean thing that you could understand. But the important thing to understand about the fires of Gehenna are that they're not there to punish, they're there to purify. That was the purpose of the fires of Gehenna. Salt had the same place in ancient life. Salt was there to purify and to preserve. And the fires, you could smoke your meats, you could preserve them that way. You could salt your food, you could preserve it that way. It was the same idea here. So the fires of Gehenna, so Gehenna is this idea that if you die with unresolved things, if you haven't learned what you need to learn to have been a just person in this life, then you're going to go to Gehenna. And yes, the fires there are real. There is going to be torment there, is the way they understood it. But it's there for purification and not for punishment. And furthermore, it's temporary. It's not forever. And so the Jewish idea of Gehenna was much more like the Catholic idea of purgatory, where you went, and this is the tradition, you went for a maximum of 12 months. And of course that was a symbolic uh, concept of a complete cycle of purification. The interesting thing is that the Kaddish, the, the form of uh, the Jewish uh, prayer for the dead that was said either for children or for parents. He'd say it longest for the parents. He'd say it every day, but only for 11 months. Because if he said it for the 12 months, he would be implying that they were as bad as they could possibly be and had to stay the whole stay in Gehenna. But see how this changes the notion of what's going on here. We take that parable and we understand it as God's judgment between these two men, one's going to hell forever, and the other is going to be comforted forever. But to a Jew's way of thinking, it's different. The rich man had to go into a place of purification and had to learn the things that he didn't learn in this life in some other way before the possibility of moving on took place. And so it changes the nature of it. Even a story like that, Jesus was telling for a specific purpose, but it still doesn't mean what we think it means. And it doesn't contradict what we're talking about here in the other places, in John and Paul, where they're talking about salvation. Does that help, buddy? Okay. Any other thoughts? One more, and then we'll, we'll bring it to a close. If it's a quick one. I don't know, you're the guy I Okay, I'll tell you if it's quick or not. The concept of hell being eternity, then, where does that come from? Jews believe in the cycle and the redemption capabilities of the fires of Gehenna. How do we end up with this concept of burning in hell forever and ever, all eternity? By the middle, of, he's asking, how do we end up with the idea of an eternal hell if it's not in the Jewish uh, uh, conception or worldview? And the answer to that is is that by the middle of the second century, like around one hundred and fifty or so. Um, There is already a complete split between the Gentile world and the Jewish world. The Jews had already gone through the two Jewish-Roman wars that had basically had obliterated Jerusalem, obliterated Judea. The Jews were disallowed from coming back to their homeland on point of death. Yeah, they stayed there, but they didn't have any kind of national presence. There was no more connection. Jerusalem ceased to exist as one of the major centers of Christianity uh, after about 132 so in the middle of the, of the century then, Western Christianity was being practiced completely apart from any of its Jewish moorings, any of its Jewish roots. And so these ideas and these concepts were replaced with Greek philosophy and Roman law. So largely what we have in Western Christianity is the study of Greek philosophy and Roman law overlaid over the words of Scripture, but changing them. You know, in, in huge ways. And, and so we don't really understand anymore. So the ideas of eternal punishment, that came from, from Greek and European understandings. The, the no, we get the actual word hell from a Teutonic word, H-E-L, which corresponds to the kind of ideas that we have about hell. And so it was a growing concept, but it didn't exist in the uh, early Hebrews or the, the, uh, the Jews that actually wrote our scripture. All right. So I think, uh, sorry, Randy, we're already at uh, 1130 here. So what I wanted to do was just have this little exercise with you. And you can see how things will pick up after a while. It takes a while to get the first couple of questions, break the ice and go. And then it starts going like this. So if we had another 15 or 20 minutes to go, it can get pretty interesting. And you can see just from the questions that were asked and hopefully the answers that were given that there is a deeper understanding about what we're talking about and some of the what ifs and the yabbuts yeah that i know are in your head and in your heart as i say some of the seemingly outlandish things that i say hopefully those are starting that ground is starting to get softened so that you can see how this could be a legitimate way forward even though it wasn't taught to you uh, in your youth and hasn't been taught in the church very much in the west but this is where we're headed and to just finally put the knot on it all of this to say that God has already chosen us. From the beginning of time, he chose us. Everything that he created, that is here, comes out of that choice for us, out of that love for us, out of that unbreakable unity and oneness that he is, which is at the center of everything, no matter how diverse it may look. And all that's left is for us to choose him back. That's the question. You want to know what judgment is? It's the question of whether we will choose back what has already been chosen for us. That's the only question. Okay, then let's all stand.